0: Welcome, everyone. It's time for another very exciting spotlight interview. Today, I've got a a very special guest, Jesse Houston, the CEO and co-founder of Phoenix Labs and a person with an incredible resume, an incredible set of games he's worked on. We're talking about Splinter Cell. We're talking about Mass Effect. We're talking about League of Legends and and his own Uh, company uh, game Dauntless and now Faye, right? That's the new one?
1: Yep. Faye Farm. Yep.
0: Just an incredible set of games. And Jesse's here to, uh, again, give me free uh, uh, coaching advice about how to start a company, how to build a culture, how to build a very successful game studio that people are happy to work at. So Jesse, thank you so much for coming on and welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you again.
0: Yeah, it's, it's been a while. I think uh, we both have uh, more children and less hair than the last time <laughs>
1: totally. we saw each other. Right? <laughs> Seriously, oh man.
0: Um, so Jesse, I met you when I was working for a studio that was first called EA2D and then got lucky enough to become Bioware San Francisco. Uh, oh, I and I was working on it. some... On, on taking the beloved treasured Bioware intellectual property and trying not to ruin it as I brought it to Facebook. Um, and you were one of the people who was incredibly friendly and helpful uh, on that journey. Uh, and I've followed you from afar and sent you the occasional Facebook message or LinkedIn message along the way, and just been uh, amazed at, at what you've accomplished. Um, in your career you. and with your company and in the things that I'm seeing, how you're, you're, you're in your wife's civic engagement in uh, Vancouver beyond Try, just games. Trying to help. So, what?
1: We're trying to help. We're trying to help. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: So just uh, someone I've respected and admired for a long time, and I'm really excited um, to have you here. So uh, as I've said, you've worked on some of the biggest, most treasured, most beloved IPs uh in the games industry, uh, unlike me, who's worked on Polly Pride, Pet Detective, and The Mystery of Shark Island, among many other classic
1: I, unforgettable say that, hits. Though, you know, I still feel like one of my favorite games that I've ever worked on was Surf's Up, which was like a penguin surf, like a movie about penguin surfing. Right. Uh, and then, you know, the, the game that had to ship alongside of it. And like, you know... It's about the friends that you make along the way, right? right. Like, yeah. you know, like That was the message and, and, of you worked the on movie. the Mass Effect franchise, it's, right? Like, yeah. you know, uh, but yeah, no, I like I've always it's it's really not just about, you know, the the IP. It, you know, the 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 folks that you work with are, you know, easily the most important for me anyway. Like that's what gets me up in the morning.
0: Yeah. So c- could you give us a bit, uh, a little bit of a tour of your history and game development and, sure. and some of the different games you've worked on? And because you've also had a very interesting career path. Uh, I looked at your Moby games and how many people do I know that have uh, 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 credits that include artist, programmer, producer and CEO? It's like you're just I've going all over the place NQA tester. Yeah.
1: So, so yeah.
0: Give, give us a tour.
1: Yeah, so I started, um, oh gosh, about 20, 21 years ago, something like that, actually just up the street at EA Canada uh, as a tester on, the, uh, on on FIFA 2002 World Cup, uh, did a couple of, of tours there, and then um, I'd gone to school uh, to be a, a 3D artist, actually a visual effects artist to be very specific, but like, you know, in 99 and 2000 when... You know, it was a very different time and age in the in the industry, and so mm-hmm. you know a lot more transferable skills I would say then than than necessarily today. Uh, and so yeah, started in QA, um, tried out to be an artist on FIFA. Uh, you know, because I had though, done my my two my two contracts at the time, which I you know I don't know if it's still a thing, but in 2000, if you had done two contracts, you have to be full time at, at that point. And, okay. They didn't have a job opening, and so uh, I got a job over at Ubisoft Montreal, where I was uh, a level, I became a level artist on Splinter Cell so One. Um, I did the last two two levels, uh, and then uh, from there, I kind of just bounced around, right? Like did some Rainbow Six, and then a game that was canceled, and then back to Splinter, and you know, kind of just like largely kept in the Clancy universe for a while, mm-hmm. and then in my last year. Um, and, you know, like, to your point, like, I did level art, and then I did a little bit of character work, and then I did technical art, and then technical art director, and then, you know, realized that I really liked the coding elements, and so kind of became a programmer, you know, not a very good one, just to be clear, but, like, <laughs> and funny. actually, I, you could probably describe my whole career as, like, I did something, realized that there was people who are substantially better than me at that okay. job, and then, like, I was like, ah, no, I, I should try this other thing. See if I can be right. really good at that. Um, and then, um, so you
0: just keep you know. realizing you're doing the wrong thing <laughs> until you're leading the company.
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, and, and I guess the bar is really low on leadership, right? Like, um, but you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, So yeah, so ultimately became um, you know, as as my time at, on, at UB kind of started to draw to an end, I wanted to become a producer. Um, And, you know, candidly, my French skills are absolute shit. And so, Mm -hmm. uh, and were in those days as well. And, and, you know, that was going to be a real limiter for, you know, being a, being a genuine leader. And so, um, and, you know, would very much have limited my, my ability to be successful. And so ultimately got a job as an associate producer on, um, on actually on Jade Empire. Uh, but it took a long time for me to move. Uh, and so they ended up shipping as I was kind of moving and then I, um, started briefly on um, a canceled game in that uh, on that team, and then after that game got canceled, uh, I moved over to the Mass Effect franchise, and then worked on the trilogy. Um, and when I left, mm-hmm. I was like the the lead producer on the, the trilogy. Basically, Casey Hudson's kind of called left hand man, um, where you know he uh, there was a lot of stuff that he didn't love about video game development, and he was like. You go take care of all that. Oh, this multiplayer thing. Ah,
0: right. all the, <laughs> all the that shit stuff. I don't want to do, you get to do. I actually, <laughs> yeah, just- like,
1: yeah, it's great though. Right. Like those yeah. kind of jobs, you know, like I often, um, you know, when I tell new, you know, younger producers, like if you can, like the stuff that isn't what the boss likes a gets you a lot of visibility into the company. Mm -hmm. um or on the team right like because you know it's still important stuff right like you know i had to do the pc port and the ps3 port and like multiplayer and uis and you know conversations and you know like it it was kind of everything around the game that has incredible Mm -hmm. impact but you know wasn't you know bioware is a storytelling company right and so like if not storytelling that was literally my my job at one point i think i had heard a rumor that people were calling me like mama bear (laughs) Um, because, you know, like I'd like it was kind of like Papa Bear wants this, Mama Bear wants, you know, us to pass cert. Um, and so, you know, and, and and so I got just a ton of really interesting experience. Um, and then, yeah, as, as Mass 3 was kind of closing up, um, you know, I had, uh, you know, the, the folks over at Riot reached out, um, actually my co-founder, Sean, uh, who was the head of HR at Riot at the time? Uh, reached out, and you know this. If you you, you know you, you got to get back in time here. Like this is 2011. Um, League this, of
0: Legends you know, wasn't the biggest League game Legends. in the world yet.
1: Right? No, right? Like you know, it, it was, was like this. Nobody weird had ever heard of it. free to play
0: pariah. Yeah, know, exactly. Like, so you took a mod and then you sold remade it and sold it. Yeah, and, and I, I liked you're the, giving like, it away I for free. A lot of like, Dota.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, pl- I basically played a lot of Dota. And so like, I kind of understood what they were trying to do. And, you know, it had just launched in North America. It was in Europe, but still being published by a separate entity. And, you know, they flew me out, and, you know, this little ragtag group of like 60 folks at the time. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they basically had this, you know, six out of 10 Metacritic game. and Yeah, I remember. Um, <laughs> and they were like, hey, you know, can you help? And, They had a really, you know, at the time they had a really good vibe and, um, you know, so helped grow the team. Uh, you know, we, I think when I, when I think when I finally actually arrived, let's call it, we were 80 folks maybe. Um, and, uh, you know, ended up leaving a couple of years later, right. Kind of as league was peaking in, uh, in 2014. Um, and, uh, you know, did a great thing. We were like 650 developers when I left. You know, it had taken over the world, was making, you know, infinite money. Um, And, you know, ultimately, like, I wasn't, uh, you know, if I'm I'm being honest, I wasn't a great culture fit for Riot. Um, And, uh, you know, they were really good to me, though. And, you know, actually, like, uh, took multiple calls from, uh, you know, Brandon and Mark both took calls with me, like, as I was starting up Phoenix, like, asking questions, like, you know, how do I think about this? How do I think about that? And, like, they were very, very supportive on the way out um and uh so yeah ultimately kind of started phoenix in 2014 you know two dudes in a room with a you know a whiteboard and sticky notes and that kind of thing and then um so Sean who was my co-founder uh left riot at the same time to go back to venture capital uh he was, he's a uh, you know venture capitalist by trade and you know, he flies up to Vancouver and we we're going to be his first investment. And I just, I just went full court press on him. I'm like, let's go home. Yeah. <laughs> Help. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like again, I'm an old school game dev. I got a half finished art degree and, you know, been <laughs> a game developer. I don't know a thing about like how to raise money at this point right. um, or how to run a business. And, you know, here's this like guy with an econ degree who went to, you know, an Ivy league college and, you know, understands the financing of the world in the back office of a video game studio. I'm like, let us pair up.
2: Uh, right. and
1: so, yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, fast forward, then God, almost, you know, coming up on nine years now um, and, you know, we've got 324 folks today and, you know, we got seven games in development and we're owned by, uh, you know, our, our publisher, uh, Garena and, you know, we're winning awards for best place to work and phase, you know, right in the heat of finishing up and it's, it's been great. Like it's a, uh, it's, it's been a amazing. wild, wild ride. Let me tell you.
0: I am um, no joke be- because of the uh, steam deck. Uh, I finished mass effect one, the, the remastered just last oh, wow. night. Yeah. I decided wow. instead of playing any of the hundreds of other games that I've purchased, I need to do a full hundred hour <laughs> renegade playthrough of mass effect. And I am actually, I am enjoying
1: don't, don't get me wrong. I'm doing the same thing. I'm playing Borderlands 2 on, yes. on my Steam I've, Deck right now. There so is no game, the I have
0: <laughs> There's no game I have beat on more platforms than Borderlands 2.
1: I oh, have wow. beaten okay, Borderlands on.
0: 2 on the Vita. I love oh, that goodness. game so much. Wow.
1: Yeah, the, those are such a great job. I picked it up. I was on a flight recently, and I was like, oh, you know what? I miss playing Borderlands. Let's go. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I want to go... Um, to to the story of um you kind of doing all the things that the director uh doesn't want to do. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: I remember the the first time I got to kind of shadow you around Bioware Edmonton. Um, we went into a room, you took me to a room where the it was like the multiplayer testing room. I don't know if you like, yep. I don't know if you remember, I remember. this at all. But I you do. told me um this great story of, because Mass Effect 2 was the beginning of free to play or DLC for EA yep. and, and for BioWare. And this was actually a very formative moment on like my journey. Cause I've actually, I've specialized in in-game monetization yeah. for like 15 years. And um, I was hoping you could, if you remembered it, tell the story of how you guys prototyped the in-game transactions for Mass oh Effect God. 2 multiplayer.
1: I don't know. I, like I have no idea whether or not this was actually legal Like you know, there's probably (laughs) some labor laws that I broke in in this process. I'm sure. Who
0: uh, hasn't broken a few labor laws (laughs) here? It
1: it was EA in the early knots. You know, like, (laughs) um, uh, you know. So, so basically, we knew that we wanted. You know, if I think about like, um, we did like for Mass Two, we had done DLC, and then for Mass Three, we had known we wanted to do this multiplayer thing, and you know, there was. For obvious reasons, good, you know, there's pressure from, you know, HQ to make sure yeah. that we're making money on this multiplayer thing. It was going to be quite an expensive little run for us, and you know, servers aren't cheap, especially in those days, right? Like everything was bare yeah. metal, and you know, there's quite quite an, an unbelievable amount of servers required and that kind of thing. And so, you know, as we uh, as we looked at kind of the overall financials of this, we knew that the engagement loop was going to be great, and so we just needed to figure out a way to kind of healthily do it. And so um, you know, there was, there's a bunch of examples like FIFA ultimate team had just kind of just started their stuff. And, um, you know, so reached up to some old friends on FIFA and kind of was like, Hey, how's that going? And, you know, what are you learning? And, you know, candidly, I'm an avid magic player. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the, uh, you know, the idea of kind of the pack model kind of really resonated with me. And so, you know, um, I'm trying to remember, I think it was Noel, like it's been a while, but I'm pretty sure it was Noel Borstad who actually came up with the original idea. Um, great designer, really phenomenally great kind of technical generalist designer. Guys, just brilliant. So we, I, I'm fairly certain it was Noel. It was either Noel or Eric, Eric Fagman who works here actually now. So, you know, came up with the idea of, of hey, let's use packs uh, and and see if we can kind of emulate the kind of the FIFA Ultimate Team kind of leveling up kind of system uh, and see if that works. And so we, you know, we implemented like a very early set of prototypes uh, and kind of got all the basics there, but like, you know, didn't have like redemption and that kind of stuff in place. Like, you know, if you had it in your inventory, we could rip open the pack and wait a minute. Um, and uh, so what I did is I basically put this jar on my desk that, mm-hmm. uh, and I was the only person who had access to the backend servers and, uh. um, and so if you wanted to buy a pack, you had to come to my desk and like stuff in a dollar or whatever it was. I think it was 25 cents or something like that. And then, uh, you know, the idea was that we were going to buy beer at the end of it. And so, God, I'm pretty sure Preston, who's, who's the creative director of the franchise, uh, lead designer kind of guy, um, I'm fairly certain Preston put like 300 bucks into that jar. Like. Wow. It was, like, every day he'd, like, walk up to my desk and just, like, stuff a 20 in there and be, like, yeah. hook me up. And it's, like, you bet, bud. <laughs> um, but, you know, <laughs> like, uh, you know, in, in, in all seriousness, like, the goal always was, like, hey, how do we make it feel really great? And, like, you know, how do we make it feel good to spend money? Um, there wasn't, you know, again, this is, you know, what was this, eight nine something like that it was a long time ago right like by so it's fire, not proven
0: it was that it. people wanted dlc gotcha in their no. multiplayer shooters yeah not, not only that long like, shot
1: you know we had no idea we had no idea right like you know a lot of stuff has happened in the industry in terms of learning about like the impacts of uh you know gotcha systems and you know how the skinner box actually works in your brain and like you know um you know we're a old school RPG. So like getting random drops that come from boxes. Great. And so the idea of loot boxes actually just kind of resonated with our RPG builder brains. And we're like, people like opening up, you know, boxes of mass effect. They're probably going to be, you know, cool with this. And so, you know, whenever, when we did testing, we just found that people liked it more. And, um, you know, we found that that engagement loop of like, Hey, I got, you know, my sniper rifle plus one, and then my two plus two plus three, like that, that edged loop up, you know, really worked well with the horde mode feeling. And, um, and so, uh, that's kind of where it all came from. You know, it wasn't some sort of, uh, you know, I've read, I've read reports about, you know, how it's all about, you know, the evil EA dictators and how, you know, some, somebody in Redwood Shores told us how we were going to do it. 22 year
0: old asshole from Redwood Shores flies up to Canada makes fun of Tim Horton's coffee, and tells you all about microtransactions. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know, and it, was, it was nothing like, you know, like I, I read a report once that said that like Frank Jabot yelled at me and mm-hmm. told me that I had to do microtrans. And it's like, couldn't be further from the truth. Like right. candidly, like I wish EA, I wish the folks at Redwood Shores paid more attention. Right. Like funny. we were up in the middle of Canada doing this RPG thing. Like we look nothing like a normal EA game, right? So like – Absolutely yeah. nothing like that whatsoever um, what, what no, I, we were more trying to figure trying to figure out how to expand into Montreal them and that was a bigger a, you know a bigger narrative to to the folks in California than, yeah. than you know our, our weird DLC monetization. right
2: This podcast is brought to you by Google for games. It takes more than a collection of tools to help you bring your gaming vision to life. With cross-platform solutions that give you access to billions of potential players around the world, Google is your partner to create great games, connect with players, and scale your business. Visit g.co slash googleforgames or go to the link in the podcast description below. And if you ask me, Google for Games is the destination to learn more about game solutions and latest research and insights from Google's gaming teams to help you achieve your goals. If you're not driving or working out while listening to this podcast, I really suggest you fire up that browser and check out Google for Games.
0: This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fun really like is Data AI's game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing a full-on deconstructing first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to day AI and try the service for free. What I what I loved about that story and something I've I've tried to replicate a couple times is the jar of money, of like yeah. actually making people pay, um, because I've had some really bad false signals. I mean, where totally. we do a company play test on a, on an elder game with the monetization mechanic, and people have access to the free money button. And like, I come back from the weekend and I look at the analytics and it's like, oh man, people spent all weekend playing. They open packs to yep. spent a thousand dollars, but it's not real money. Right. Yep. So then it hit the players and it's like, oh, the players are not these, uh, this type of gamer at all. They're not buying totally. it. But like the skin in the game of having somebody put, even if it was just a quarter or a dollar in in order to access it, it's like, it's, it's a, there are so many things I love about it because it's a no tech solution. Right. And it puts, it, it's, it forces people to put real skin in the game. So you get real signal. And I, I honestly think about that all the time. It was a very important moment and lesson for me on kind of my journey as monetization design person.
1: Yeah. You know, candidly, um, didn't, you know, I didn't realize the power of it until I started Phoenix. Like when, um, you know, when we first started Dauntless, we were actually a loot box-based company. Um, and, uh, you know, at, at Riot, we didn't implement that. Everybody just kind of had an unlocked account. And then
0: mm-hmm.
1: here we didn't do the unlocking thing. And, you know, candidly, like, you know, if I got back into the Wayback Machine, so like, I'm not sure if I can't remember if I've ever told the story publicly, but basically in 2018, we changed from a loot box based monetization mechanism, um, right after kind of, you know, that was when loot boxes like super exploded, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, everything from battlefront to, you know, some of these other games were just kind of getting really raked through the coals on, on their monetization practices. And, you know, we were very nervous about that negative impact. And so we switched from loot boxes to bespoke like four months before launch. Um, but, you know, candidly, like, our loot box systems were great. Players felt really good about them. You know, we constantly had great feedback about it. You know, there was always the noise around, like, loot boxes are evil and that kind of stuff. But, like, um, you know, in retrospect, I don't know if the solution that we picked was the right solution to that problem. Wherein, um, uh, you know, I'm not saying that we should or shouldn't have used loot boxes and Dauntless, but more that... Um, we identified a problem, and then our reaction mm-hmm. was to go to bespoke. And I don't know if that reaction, um, on the long term, um, you know, that I've learned a lot about like, hey, our bespoke systems didn't allow for enough depth. And, um, you know, can- candidly, like it's got some problems with um, how it interacts with overall progression. You know, as an example, like it turns out you have a game that's about killing beavers taking their skin, making hats. And then we, you know, you make this amazing hat and come back to the city and we're like, would you like to buy a much nicer looking hat? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, it turns out that that actually has an impact on the overall, um, you know, the, the motivation loops. And so, you know, I think in in retrospect, like for a Dauntless 2 style game, like, you know, I think we would rethink monetization to get back to some of the like, you know, because to your point, like we did a ton of testing, we had a ton of internal testing. I had the jar on my desk. Um, I think Billy Buskell, who was also worked at Bioware with us, um, he was my kind of my scrum master on the, on the, uh, um, on the multiplayer side. He, he was also here at, uh, at Phoenix during the launch. Still here, he's a producer on, on Fae Farm. Um, and I think Billy had the, the jar on his desk, if memory serves, uh, for most of the time on, on Dauntless. But, you know, it worked great. Like candidly, He, he it hadn't on his desk except those days on, where
0: like, your rent was due. That's when... <laughs>
1: Well, you see that, like, you know, like, I think there's a bigger problem if I'm paying so poorly that somebody can afford a buck, you know, right. like, or a quarter, you know, for a four pack, right? Like a quarter, right? Like. Right. <laughs> actually, I think that one of the bigger problems, I do remember there was a moment in time where like we had just put a bunch of new content in and one of the designers could not get anybody to break break a, uh, a like a five dollar bill because like Canada's all like they're you know the smallest denominations of paper money are five dollars right and so right. like
0: you've got you the know getting a quarter getting journeys. something
1: from a five dollar bill to a quarter is actually a kind of a pain in the ass right, right. <laughs> so that's funny
0: um I'm curious you know you went from a premium you know a career in premium. With some yeah. multiplayer and DLC on the side um, to Riot, early Riot, League of Legends, yep. free to play um, at a time when, you know, Riot wasn't the juggernaut it is now. You were part of that journey. Um, free to play wasn't a part of kind of our everyday gamer vocabulary. What was that transition like? What were kind of the some of the big differences of going from... Mm these two massive premium publishers on uh, um, Ubisoft and then EA to uh, uh, you know, free to play startup um, doing something, you know, almost no one was doing at the time.
1: It's a great question. You know, I have spent most of my career, you know, where the things that we sell were directly at, like within the value chain of the consumer. So like, you know, to your point, you know, I worked on, you know, Splinter, and you know, you put a silver disc in a box and you sell it, and then there was some DLC, and I think Splinter's DLC might have been free. I can't remember; it was a, That was a long time ago. Um, and then, you know, my a lot of my career kind of pushed into the multiplayer side of things. So, like, if you kind of look at like every game that I've been on since Splinter Cell, you know, Splinter Cell Three, I you know was a level artist and then a programmer on the on the uh, the multiplayer side. Splitter Cell Four. While I was the technical uh, art director on the 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 main game, I also like spent an an inordinate amount of time on the multiplayer. Um, and then you know every everywhere I went, I kind of always like brought multiplayer with me. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that was a lot of my focus. And the nice thing about multiplayer is that it kind of gives you access to different ways for players to value things and experiences. Right? Like you know when you think about a single player game, like. I, I probably wouldn't make a single player game free to play. I don't know if you know I've actually you know in all in all seriousness, Square's done some really interesting stuff like um, you know they've got the octopath, they've got like that octopath mm-hmm. free to play single player game, which has actually kind of got some really interesting mechanics and I have spent a bunch of money in it. Um, but kind of you know you gotta work pretty hard to make that fit, right? And I think yep. you know trying to get a big old single player RPG onto mobile, Means you have to, you, you really got to kind of bend a lot of, you know, you, you got to do a lot of kind of mind shifting to get it into a free to play space because there's no money in premium mobile, right? But there's a little money,
0: but yeah, there's no, yeah. You know. our, mm. our audience knows <laughs> they're, they're yeah, majority right. <laughs> free to play mobile developers. They, they know, yeah,
1: yeah, and, and um, but the cool thing that I've found that multiplayer gives is that you can start to have a more interesting conversation with your community around what they value and what they want to spend money on. And I also think that what's really interesting about the free-to-play model is that it aligns incentives, um, or at the very least, live service games align incentives with the players and the developers. Where mm-hmm. you know the single-player game, it's this huge investment up front and. Then you're kind of done. We, you know, we go through cert, we send it off to manufacturing, and then we go on vacation for six months and start something new. Um, whereas, you know, live service and free to play, which you know are not technically the same thing, but are often very intermingled, um, as you know, um, I find make it so that yes, there's that big upfront, but then, you know, then the conversation becomes, "Hey, am I continuously adding value? and Am I making sure yeah. that you're still having a good time? Are you like?" you know, are, do you are and we your doing guild right have by the players? To be excited Sorry? about.
0: It's like, yeah. do you and your guild have something to be excited about every day you show up?
1: Yeah, and, you're... and you know, I have found that in my, you know, in the last, call it 10 years of of running, you know, free-to-play businesses, you know, the players, the more that we are tightly aligned with what players love, the more that they want to give us money. Um, you know, we, we definitely... You know, did a lot of experimentation in my time at Riot. You know, I and I want to be really careful. I haven't worked there in nine years. So I'm, you know, I don't know what goes on behind behind the scenes there. But, um, you know, in my time there, um, you know, stuff like Pulsefire Ezreal, where, you know, and, and Ragefire Udier, which were like these incredibly premium skins. I think they're at $20, $25 for a skin rate, right? like very, very high end. You know, universal net promoter score. Um, positivity right like everybody that we interacted with within the game both um you know in a quantitative way as well as a qualitative way and then if you look at like secondary stats like retention and and that kind of stuff all up to the right like when we when we hit it and we built something that players loved and they were more than happy to you know give us money and we find that the same thing here on Dauntless, like the more tightly that we give players kind of what they want in a way that they want it and in the way that gets them, you know, continuing to enjoy the game, the happier they are. And you can see that like, for example, like, um, so we do a like a battle pass thing that we call a hunt pass, right? And, you know, initially it was very kind of standard. You know, they last for a quarter, they start on this day and they end on this day. And if you get to level 100, blah, and then you can, you, know, you can boost up. And you know, very, very like classic, battle pass system and then more recently we've started like playing with it to find ways that like make it for make it so that like players can have more of what they want right like and we were finding that 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 like time linearity of like okay it's only for 93 days come hell or high water or 91 days or whatever right um you know we found people on like day 70 they don't want to buy that right like they're going to run out of time Mm -hmm. and then they're kind of forced to boost and then we're forced to discount boosting and like Next thing you know, we're in this kind of weird race to the bottom, rather mm-hmm. than, hey, no, we want to give you a thing that improves. Like, if you're going to go off and hunt monsters, how do you move more bars up to the right? Like, people love moving bars up to the right. I, I mean, I, I do right. Like, I you know, I play a mess. You know, I, <laughs> I play a mess of games where I, as long as I see a bar, I'm happy. as Right. A boom, right. And so, like, you know, how do we if we can if we can get more of that. Great. And so, you know, we've been, we've been really experimenting over the years of like changing the things that we thought were kind of fixed rules um, and, you know, seeing what works and what doesn't, and then, you know, shifting for and against and like, um, and really just kind of looking to candidly create a better relationship that enabled, you know, folks to have more fun while we're still making good money um, yeah, and not being greedy. Never be greedy. All greedy right. is bad.
0: It's a great lesson uh, for anybody listening, um, about how to, you know, kind of do free to play. Right. Um, and yeah, i found that too, that, you know, one of the most interesting kind of live service moments, um, on legendary was, um, when our guilds, our top guilds would start telling us like, um, we were expecting today's event to be X and we've been planning for that and you changed this and this without telling us and we're very angry at you like the level of ownership and commitment um that the players feel when they when they get really invested in your game is actually so much higher than you as the developer on the operation side end up having and so like learning how to be as close to the players as possible and learn what's important to them like i never you know there there are things where it's like oh we changed the way this works a little bit and people are like losing their minds because they've been preparing for that moment. Um, those sorts of lessons have been super interesting. Um,
1: and I think to your point, one of the things that I think every developer who wants to get into the kind of the live service and free to play space needs to reflect on themselves is how much they respect their audience. And like Mm -hmm. it's, you know, if, if the art of game making to you, as a developer, in my mind, and this is just my opinion, of course, right? Like you know, take it for what it's worth. But if the if the art of game making to you is that of a manufacturing job, wherein you're you're building a thing to sell it, free to play may not be the thing for you. Whereas if the art of game making to you is more like a performance art, like if you're like a player, like a uh, like an actor in a play you're probably more into it. Like if, if that, that similar kind of like, Hey, I'm going to get out there. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to interact with the audience. Like, you know, if you've ever, if you spent much time in theater, like the, the first showing of any of any theatrical thing versus the last showing are almost entirely different plays, even though the lines are almost identical. Um, and if, you know, if you, can, if you can find a way to see both ends, you, you start to see it because it's with that audience interaction and the boos and the laughs and the hisses and like mm-hmm. all of the texture makes for a better product. And I think, you know, the more that you can, that you respect all of that stuff because, you know, you're going to piss, like you, you know, you're going to break a few eggs to make some omelets, right? And like right. to your point, you're going to try stuff and you're going to piss people off and i have found that the you know the best communities advocates that i've worked with within our community are the ones that kind of get that we're trying stuff but also are the ones that we're you know have the courage to kind of tell us with an open heart hey this is how that felt yada 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 and like you know on our end like we invite those people literally onto our private slack right like those folks get to come wow. all the way into all the way into the company because like they're super valuable right like and we care about them. Like, we deeply care about this experience. And, for you know, people get married IRL to people that they spend time with in our game. Like, so we, we had better respect that. And, yeah. you know, it's not just about the monetization, but, like, it's all part and parcel, right? Like, um, anyway, sorry. Yeah, I'll it's almost like it,
0: the, the way I, I think about it recently is, is almost um, saying, thinking about ourselves as entertainers like thinking a little yeah. bit more broadly um yes. i love improv i love comedy i love stand up i love improv awesome. and in in those um art forms as in music and now in like live operated games the audience is just like you're saying they are a participant and so Absolutely. i think that's that's what live ops is about is about viewing um you know, it's it's a humbling moment when you realize that something you've spent like two years thinking about, almost every waking hour of the day, and working on, and loving, that you don't even come close <laughs> in in how much in how connected you feel to that as totally. the most devoted members of your audience.
1: Well, you know, it's it's interesting too. You know, as a as a parent, I'm sure you can kind of relate to this. Like, I find that the you know I can only you know, in my parenting style, you know, create an environment for my kids to thrive, but I can't force them to thrive. And I can't, and it's in the same way, like I can try and create an environment where people can have fun and I can't force them to have fun, but it's still my fault if they don't, right? Like Mm. if, if I create an environment where my kids can thrive and they put their hand on the hot, you know, on the hot plate, like still my damn fault, right? Like I have to kind of make sure that they, you know, Come out of that learning that hot plate bad without putting hand on hot plate and vice versa in the, in the community, like setting up, you know, these experiences to be enjoyed and, you know, and properly monetized and, re, you know, things that retain our players, but doing it. And if it fails to do that, they're the ones not having fun. And ultimately that's my fault because I'm, my job is to make experiences that are yeah. fun for people. Right.
0: Absolutely. Want to know how your results stack up against other gaming apps? Well, now you can. AppsFlyer, the industry leader in measurement and mobile analytics, just released a new tool providing benchmarks on 21 key growth metrics for over 20 categories in 25 markets for both iOS and Android. And it's available now for free at appsflyer.com benchmarks. Yes, you heard that correctly. completely free. In just one click, you can easily compare installs, retention, revenue, media cost, and much, much more. With these benchmarks, you'll be able to get intel on your competitors, set goals based on insights from the top 10% of mobile games, explore new markets and growth opportunities, inform soft launches, and understand market dynamics and trends so that you can adapt your UA strategy accordingly. Over the past seven years, AppsFlyer's industry data reports, trends, and insights have helped thousands of mobile app marketers to excel at their jobs and grow their apps. Trust them. They know their data. Head to appsflyer.com benchmarks now for more info.
2: Let's pause this podcast for a moment because I need to talk to you. That's right, You. Are you ready? Good. So, you're an indie game developer, and you need funding to help you launch and market your game. No problem, right? There should be one place where you can get funding and resources, but there really hasn't been one. Until now. Our friends at Exola have launched Exola Funding Club, which you should check out ASAP. Exola Funding Club is matchmaking service for developers, investment firms, and groups, as well as video game publishers. They have a simple process. Developers apply to join the Funding Club. Once they're accepted, their applications are sent directly to interested investors looking to invest into video games. Games just like yours. It's a win-win situation. Qualified developers get their game pitches placed in front of funding sources, while investors discover curated games that meet their criteria for the investment portfolio. Ready to get started? Just head over to exola.pro/funding, or find the link in the episode description and apply today. Exola Funding Club, putting the fun back in funding.
0: So you said... You know, one of the things I wanted to talk about the most with you specifically was culture and building your company's culture and the importance of culture. And I wanted to go back to something you said earlier. You were at Riot when it went from, you know, 10x the people from 60 yeah. to 650 or whatever it was. And from this weird experiment with the bad Metacritic score that nobody understood to you know, the biggest game and the most important game company in the world. Um, but that ultimately that, um, part of why you left was cultural fit, that it didn't feel like the right place for you. So what were some of the biggest, what were some of the lessons you learned being a part of that riot growth period that you took with you into the founding of Phoenix?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So, um, uh you know I think the the you know, one of the one of the best parts about riot is that that is that is very much where I learned that the only thing that matters is that player experience right like that you know very uh, at least in my time at riot one of the you know you we always talk about player first mentality and and, and that kind of stuff and um you know, compared to, say, my time at EA or my time at Ubisoft, where, like, my boss really was the most important thing in my life, that shift of mindset to, hey, the players are, are the, the most important thing. And don't get me wrong. Your boss and your coworkers are super important. But, like, hey, if you make your boss happy but you don't make your players happy, you haven't won. And, mm-hmm. you know, I would offer that, like, in my time, I think the the two ends of those spectrums were very real for me, where there was like a, you know, I can think about my time at EA where, you know, you better hit your date, you better do it on a budget, and you better hit your Metacritic or, you know, you're in trouble. And vice versa, you know, if one bug gets into live that, you know, you weren't expecting, you're going to get into trouble, right? And so there's the, it was this very, you know, polar experience and so you know in coming to phoenix and starting phoenix i tried to try and find some amount of balance like video game down bad but Mm -hmm. also you know hey we've got this team and we've got our own set of goals and we've got a business and like you know making players happy but if the lights turn off no no bueno right like you know and if everybody you know burns out and quits on the process no bueno right and so there's you know there's this kind of larger set of problems. And so when we, you know, as we kind of got started, we wanted to, you know, make sure that we had, you know, this set of values that were really aligned both with creating great games, but also with kind of creating a great place in a forever company. And so, you know, we got people are the ends, not the means. And that one's probably the, you know, if they're all equal, this one's like first among, among equals, and then mm-hmm. do it matters, transparency and candor, and then winning together. And the idea is that the kind of the, the ecosystem of values there will help get the right decisions made to enable us to kind of create these timeless experiences that are, you know, for you know played for generations and and done in a way that is very respectful to. Um, both the team and the players and, you know, and the the books, right? You know, we are a publicly traded company. So, you know, we have to balance the shareholders and the team and and the players appropriately. Uh, And, you know, so the goal is always trying to kind of do that through our values. And then, you know, talking a little bit to the culture, and I I, I joked about it earlier about it being like the thing that happens when I'm not looking. I I mean that in, in actuality, right? Like, you know, I don't know what Justin does most of the time. Right um, mm-hmm. or what? You know, Sean Justin, does most
0: for the for the audience is the PR, the the head of comms oh, yeah. who's Sorry. silently yeah. here, yeah. just just <laughs> observing, just making sure, just Jesse just making sure that I don't break line. things.
1: It it should be <laughs> it should be noted that the community has named me the Leaky Lobster, um, and <laughs> um, uh, because I I under no circumstances can hold secrets. I am terrible right. at doing. And for years yeah. this has been a problem. I've like So there like, there are
0: 7 games yeah. in development at your company and you only know what 3 of them are. The other 4 have not been revealed. <laughs> no, no, basically, to you they yet. don't they, tell me they, about they any need of to them.
1: Know, I'm afraid need to know and all that. Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> <Sorry>. right? <laughs> yeah, when when you're when your biggest risk of of leaking is your CEO, it's always a great great moment. And and to be clear, like I, you know, I've tried over the last few years, especially to get better at this. Um, uh, because it actually does like it, it hurts morale when I'm when I get up on Twitter and I talk about you know bad things outside of turn and like you know, or show something that's not you know, that's in progress. And like you know, so we 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 practice that one of our values is transparency and counter, and, and so as a part of that, you'll often see like on our Slack and in various other kind of communication channels, like people showing very early work, like way earlier than any other company I've ever worked with. Right. And you know, I I can relate as an artist, you get out there and you, you know, you kind of put this like half form loaf of bread up there and you're like, Hey, anybody got any feedback? And then for like, you know, I'm like snip tool, grab, go to Twitter. I'm so fucking excited. Like, they're just like, are you like, you know, I'll be like, I'm so excited. You know, ex-artist just showed me this cool thing and it's like, you know, some gray box nightmare, right? That looks like crap. And, you know, this is some award-winning artist who's got this career of only ever, you know, making gold bars and I'm showing gray block stuff and they're just like, you gotta be kidding
0: me. And and the thing (laughs) about the human brain that makes that really hard is if you got 99 positive comments and one negative comment the one negative comment will stick with you for weeks and the 99 positive things will just like your brain doesn't even absorb them that's just human nature
2: unfortunately (laughs) yeah totally Uh,
0: and it it sounds like i mean you have you've mentioned on this uh, uh recording already how many people you've worked with in the past either from Bioware, Ubi, or um, Riot who've joined you on this Phoenix Labs mission. And I have to imagine that the focus on culture and the focus on values and on building a place that people want to work and are happy and fulfilled at is is a big part of that.
1: Yeah, you know, like, I don't purport to be, you know, uh, special in any kind of way, you know, to your, I'm, the, the goal is to create an environment where people can come and, and do world-class work. And, you know, to your point, I've had an opportunity of working on some really great franchises and, um, you know, about 20% of the company today um, has shipped a game with me uh, it, uh, in a previous life. Um, and like, I think the first 20 folks all were, you know, some form of having worked with me, you know, it was like the 21st or so person was the first person that we worked for that we hired from outside of my immediate network. Um, and
0: they lasted three weeks.
1: No, <laughs> no actually, oh, no, they're still here, they're, they're, um, the, it's this amazing artist named Roger Ebenhart, um, Eberhardt, rather. And he's been with us since the get-go and is absolutely phenomenal. Um, it's a character, a principal character artist on Fay Farm. Um, really, really phenomenal human. Um, and, uh, you know, I think as we think about kind of the company that we wanted to build, we, you know, we knew that we wanted to be doing world-class stuff and we wanted to create an environment that, create, that creates world-class things. And um, we also, you know, at the time, when especially when we were starting, you know, it was early kind of venture capital days, right? Like. You know raising 10 million bucks was unheard of for example in 2014 you know now mm-hmm. nowadays it's a little bit more, or at least last year it was a little bit more last year 10 rate.
0: million was just dropping out of trees 100 million was dropping out C- of trees. candidly that, like you yeah. know like
1: yeah, yeah. you know the, the the investment market changed a lot in the last eight years let's just say that but like in yeah. those days you know like we knew that um you know money was always going to be a relatively you know, limited commodity and and that risk capital deployment was going to be an incredibly important component to how we think about building video games. And if we want to build world-class games, we candidly didn't have a lot of time to fail. And so, um, you know, we picked battles that we thought we could win with, um, you know, the team that we had. And and one of the ways that we, you know, really thought about team building was like, hey, if we know that we don't have a lot of shots on goal in terms of um, getting it right, we should probably like find folks that have done something great in a space before and kind of know what it takes to get it done right the first time. And so, you know, candidly, I think it's more than I think it's like 81, 82% of folks here are what you know what might be called industry seniors. Um mm-hmm. you know, like call it uh, like the, the average tenure in the industry here is um is I think nine years or something like that. Um uh, and so you know, we take a relatively senior group of folks and then kind of structure the organization in a way that gives them a lot of autonomy and the ability to do great work, um, knowing that they're kind of you know, going to be able to flourish in that environment. And, you know, taking a very explicit um, set of, like, like a very explicit way in, in designing and organizing. Like, like building a company is just like building a game, right? Like. The better that you do with design, candidly, the better the experience is going to be. And we, you know, we take a very, very, very careful view on how we build teams, how we recruit, make, making sure that we're, you know, being very thoughtful in our in our mechanisms and not just following, um, you know, whatever the the industry standard way of doing, you know, team building or improving diversity or you know, otherwise, like, we we take a very, hey, what what is our problem and how are we going to solve it? Because, candidly, our industry doesn't create forever companies by default, right? Like, no. Um, and, you know, I think about, like, you know, finding companies that are 9, 10, 11, 12, 15 years old are actually unfortunately rare. And, right. Um, you know, let alone ones that have been around for 30 years. Um, who are not kind of one of the big five publishers are, in, in, you know, even rarer, right? And so, you um, know, I think some of that is because like the, the, you know, what is considered the you know, state of the art in terms of team building and in terms of kind of how to, how to run a video game company are not necessarily all the right decisions towards creating, you know, a company that's going to be around long after I die.
0: And I, you know, something I've thought about a lot as as I've started, you know, I'm very early on my personal founder journey here. And I something I think about all the time or that this has given me the space to think about is like, this is my dream job. It's all I ever want to do. It's, I think it's the coolest job in the world and the most fun job in the world. And I love video games. I love playing them. I love talking to people about video games. I love reading about them. So why am I so miserable all the time? Like at work, (laughs) why has this work made me so miserable most of the time for 20 years? And then my therapist just looks at me and goes, I don't know what to tell you, bro, but (laughs) you know, it's, it's, it is, if you just think about kind of the standard way of doing things, or if you were just, you know, building a games company on autopilot, like it creates a lot of, um, opportunity for, for misery. And I mean, that's probably all yeah. jobs, but
1: well, I think, what are, I think not only is it all jobs, but I think it's also like, I think the, um, the world likes to try and believe that uh you have this thing that you do, you know, in an office, and then you have this thing that you do at home, and those things are like one is work and the other one is life. And that they're, you know, they're highly independent of each other. And you need to balance them. I mean, we talk about work-life balance as as if they are two opposing poles in some sort of spectrum or on some sort of seesaw, you know, of like, oh, if I work too much, it hurts my life. And if I life too much, it hurts my work. And it's like, I don't know about you. Like, look, you know, I'm, I'm a video game executive or whatever you want to call me, right? Like, so obviously I work, you know, probably a few too many hours and it, you know, it seeps all over the place, but like, I don't think that it is as, as bifurcated and especially in 2022 when, you know, many, many people are working from the same place that they sleep and- yeah you know, they go to their kitchen, they get a cup of coffee, and they, you know, potentially even sit down in their kitchen and, and, and then, you know, work for eight hours. Um and their dog, you know, wants to let them and their kids are in the room with them, right? Like that 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 separation is just not as real. And it never was real. Right. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we like to pretend like it is and that we can put these things in little boxes. But like if you don't as a as a business builder, I've always tried anyways to recognize that everybody's on a journey at some point in their life and everybody's life is, you know, wrapping around this thing that they do at the job. And there's a bit of grace that you have to have when people are kind of like when the life is a little heavier and in the same way that we ask for grace when the work is a little heavier, right? Like, and I use the term grace very specifically because, you know, it's not forgiveness. It's like understanding and empathy and, you know, you're building a community in in the workplace, but also like there's community in the home and all these other things that like need to be taken in and and need to be thoughtful about, right? Like, and I think as, you know, there's a lot of company builders who want it to be a very transactional relationship. And I think there's there's a very popular set of labor movements happening in the universe right now that um, are trying to make it much more transactional and I think that there's also a lot of bosses who are interested in this that as well. And I think that that's actually the wrong solution to the right problem. And I think that there was a lot of bad behavior over the last 25 years in the development in the games industry that are causing us to try and move to something that creates safer environments with you know more humane hours that you know and you know better pay discre- you know distribution and 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 and, and. And I think the the move to, you know, call it the, you know, a more transactional method is not going to create great, uh, creative products. I think it's going to mm-hmm. create more transactional products. And I think, um, you know, if you look to the car industry as one example, um, the, you know, if you look at Ford today versus Ford fifteen years ago, the relationship that Ford had to It's the people that are actually making the cars has radically shifted. You know, you got, um, uh, um, I'm I'm struggling to remember the the CEO's name, but he, you know, he recently talked about how the move to electric is being powered by a closer relationship to the union. Not a, not a further away one. One, You know, if you think about like how Ford interacted with unions 15, 20 to 30, 40 years ago, it was very adversarial versus bringing Mm -hmm. in the folks who can help build better cars and build more autonomy into the system and build better rewarding jobs will build, you know, his view is that it's going to build better cars. And actually if you look at the shifts around the car industry, you see that all over the place. The people who care deeply about the worker's experience tend to have better outcomes. And I think that it's not because of some forced thing, but because like if you recognize the larger ecosystem. The, the better off that you're going to be, where you can make it so that the folks, you can make an environment where folks want the company to win and they're mm-hmm. going to do their best if you make an environment that you want their lives to win, right? Like I'm only doing my job if people are having great life outcomes. People are the ends, not the means, right? That's one of our values. And the, the people are going to do right by the larger company, by their, that community in that environment, much more likely than they are if, you know, my my value was shareholders first make profit go big 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 bling bling you know cream um so yeah anyway sorry i'm a soapboxy person on this topic that's a great
0: (laughs) so on on the top on the idea of intentionally designing your company um what are some of the choices that you and the other leaders have have made with phoenix labs uh, you know of around intentional design of the company that you're most proud of or think have been most successful or that me and the other listeners in the audience should uh, steal to make our companies better places to work with that produce more fun games for our players.
1: I would, I would say, you know, it's a complicated question um, that um, I think should be taken, you know, any answer that I give should be taken with a grain of salt because it makes sense in the context of, 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 what Phoenix does. And we're a weird place to work and I think you know there I think first of all, creating space to be intentional. It's very easy. like you know, I like you am a developer founder, right like or a technical founder or whatever that's called. like I'm happiest when I'm off making a video game or I'm working with devs to make video games. and like that said, like it's critical. and you know, I find that I'm most successful like basically the day after I finish some sort of, you know, organizational rethought exercise if you will or, or reorg or however you want to describe it like and in you know Phoenix we do that yearly where we literally restructure the entire business to make sure that we're solving all the right problems um, soup to nuts like hey are the right leaders in the right spot should they be doing something else? should they you know be leading this other thing you know how are we thinking about reporting you know we've changed the way that we think about reporting structure and like and whatnot at least six times um, in the nine years right like you know, your constant, like companies and communities change and therefore, you know, really revisiting regularly is very, very important. Um, and I think like, you know, another thing that I think works for just about everybody is, um, or could, is really taking the view of that balance between the you know, the product outcomes and the employee outcomes and making sure that they're very much part of a larger ecosystem rather than, you know, two sides to an equation. They're not meant to be, you know, the video game can only be this good if you crunch a thousand hours. And, you know, if you, you know, work four days a week, then you can't make good video games. You know, I personally, we don't do four days a week. We are predominantly in the office. And, you know, we do other stuff that allows for a greater degree of balance and we make sure that we're, you know, thinking about things, you know, like as an example, we, we are very forceful with take, making sure people take lots of vacations and, you know, and that like when they're at work, they're focused on work. And then when they're not, they're not like, you know, we don't want people to crunch. And, you know, we try very, 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 very hard to limit the amount of, number of hours. That like we want 44 weeks of what we call like the rested edge, right? Like we want people to only mm-hmm. work 44 weeks a year and we want them to work for, on average 40 hours a week. And we want to do that very much, a, you know, and be very specific about this stuff. I think is the, the thing that I'm trying to get at here. Right. Like I think sometimes it's very easy to get reactive and to get very mimi, Right. Like, um, you know, it's very popular to do certain things at any given time. And like, um, and to like, be very absolute and not revisit. And then, you know, I would say like, just get get really honest with, with yourself and your team and talk about the decision-making. And also, like, for goodness sakes, like, if you're going to go and hire some, like, six-figure programmer who can you know, reinvent payment processing. They can probably understand the relationship between payroll, hours, worked, and planning. And you can probably have a very open and transparent conversation with these folks. They get it. They're really fucking smart. That is one of the things that we are blessed with in our industry is we work with incredibly smart Mm -hmm. people um, who get it. Um, Like if guys like you and I, who are like old school game devs, can start companies, guaranteed that, you know, my most junior artist in the company can absolutely interact with a well-founded conversation around, you know, and a well-intended conversation around the pros and cons of the business. And so like revisit, own it, be transparent about it, trust your folks, like be very explicit, right? Like don't, you know, don't view the people as somehow separate to, you know, the, the leadership, like be of the people. Right. Like, and, you know, it's that kind of stuff. Like, and, you know, I get that that's very kind of like Canadian egalitarianism, but like,
0: right. I can, like love... can to jump in for a second. Sorry. Like, Jesse, yeah. there might be another way of illustrating this as well, if you're comfortable. And that's talking yeah. about uh, Katie and Fay Farm story. I know it's a, a sort of oh, broader sure. look, but like, Ethan, this might be a good illustration of how Jesse and the leadership team also, you know, like, levels up. The team and also encourages and supports the team as well, if that doesn't tee it up too much.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so the story there is, you know, and, and the allegory that I think Justin is getting to. And the, so, Fae Farm was not um, a preordained thing at Phoenix. It wasn't this idea that, like, hey, we knew that the next game we were going to make was Fae Farm. Um, in fact, it was never even in the in, in the thing. So, Katie, who is uh, at the time she was the art director on Dauntless, I've worked with her for forever. She was at uh, Riot with me. She was an amazing concept artist, award winning concept artist, absolutely brilliant human. And you know, she was kind of like getting sick of making fantasy games about hitting other things, right? And. <laughs> Yeah, My, know, and it was the middle. Look, yeah, <laughs> like, I, I
0: just like I'm um, in, in part of what I, people ask me what game I'm doing. And I said, well, I don't know yet because I don't know until I hire this person. This person yeah. can make any game they want as long as it's about punching things, shooting things or maybe <laughs> driving cars into things. Yeah. Within that realm, anything, it's, anything's possible. Absolutely right? Absolutely. Katie's like, I've had fact of punching I, fact, things and shooting yeah. things and driving cars yeah. into things.
1: And, you know, it was like 20, it was mid 2021 and, you know, COVID's in full effect. The world's kind of melting down. Everybody, like, you know, overall cynicism in the world was at an all time high, right? Like very weird place to be as a creative individual. Right. And so you know, Katie's like, we need more cozy in my life, and Animal Crossing's not doing it for me anymore. I love farm sims. I want to go make a farm sim. And she actually quit. She was like, I, I'm going to go make a farm sim on the side. And I'm like, why are you quitting? And she's like, well, you'll never make it. You know, this is this is not a, an, an action RPG MMO. I'm like, mm-hmm. Katie, like, that's, why don't you make that here? And so oh, wow. her and a couple other folks um, kind of went off to the uh, – you know, in, in to the side, um, and, uh, started working on Faye and, you know, candidly, like we accidentally showed it in a, in a, so every I don't know, call it quarter, or every six months, like we, you know, we talked to the major platform holders about what we're up to. Right. And it's mm-hmm. kind of just a normal thing that we do. And, you know, like we, you know, we talk about Dauntless and where it's going, and, you know, hey, here's what's in development, and da da And, you know, we often, because we're lazy game developers, will reuse content from other presentations, right? And right. so, like, I had recently given a larger, broader strategy update to the whole company that had, you know, what each game is and, you know, where it's at in development and that kind of stuff. And so, my head of publishing sat down with uh, Nintendo over dinner at, um, it was at the game awards or something like that last year and was like you know here's what we're working on he forgot to pull out the Fay farm right. stuff because like again this was meant to kind of more just be a we'll see what happens it's super freaking early you know it's three people at this point it's like four months they got like you know they got like rock chipping and like planting going and you know nothing else right and nintendo's like oh can we what was that can we see that can we can we see that and we're like no <laughs> totally not an mmo <laughs> like um and they're like no, no 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 seriously let's see it um and so we're like okay well we need some time to get the game to be you know compiling um, mm-hmm. and, um this,
0: uh, this this was the day it worked uh, it's been yeah, twenty-seven kind of, days since then. We need a yeah, little exactly time. right.
1: Like you know, and like you do things in a very different way when you're a three-person team than when you're a fifty-person right. team, right? And and you know, I don't say that with any amount of disrespect for the way that the team was working. Quite the opposite, like those folks were just going crazy, like super right. impressive group of uh, group of devs. And so you know, so we come back from from this dinner, and Nick pings me, and Nick's the head of publishing, and he's like, "Hey, I just had this thing, and you know, they really want to see him okay, let's go and talk to Katie and see what we can do. Katie's like, well, I need programmers. She doesn't have a programmer on the team at this point. Right. Right. Like, you know, she's taught herself to model. She's got a a phenomenally great level artist named Jen Morgan. And then, um, Ian Holoka, who's maybe one of the best technical artists I've ever worked or technical designers I've ever worked with. or the only three people on the team. And so like Ian's like, I don't, I can't think. Of so it. they're just building unreal blueprints or something, right? Yeah, exactly, right? And so the whole, you know, and, and Ian's very, a, very good coder for sure. So, like, you know, there's some C going on, some blueprint, and like, but, you know, it, we're a ways away from thinking about this game in a more, um, or I'll call it a less conceptual sense and a more actual sense. And so so they're like, hey, okay, well, we'll need some programmers. So we go and get uh, Adrian Chung, who is the technical director on Dauntless, to come in. And I think a couple others. And we, and we cobbled together a small group of folks to kind of um, get a bill together. And then in February, we show this demo to to the Nintendo folks. And they're like, you know, OMG, what the fuck barbecue? This is amazing. Um, right. You know, holy shit. Can, can you, you know, let, let's do a thing together. They're and like, for years,
0: know, we've been selling millions and millions of copies of Animal Crossing and asking ourselves, <laughs> why aren't more people competing with us? And we yeah, just don't exactly. understand why uh, no
2: one would touch this thing right? that
1: sells gazillions of copies. And so, um, you know, off we go. And so, like, you know, we needed, we obviously needed to kind of broaden the team, and and you know, became a much more, call it, um, you know, higher priority. And we we often shift folks around. It's a very normal thing at Phoenix for mm-hmm. folks to work on, you know, in a given quarter m- multiple games. It's it's we call it away missions. It's really really frequent here. Um, and you know, all of a sudden Faye kind of went from being this kind of thing that was, you know, more on the side of the desk to hey, one of the most important games in the portfolio now. And uh, and then Katie basically was kind of like, Hey, you know, I, I really want to make video game. I don't want to lead video game. And then at the same time, Isaac app, who's the who's now the product head in the game, um, uh you know, kind of put his hand up and said, Hey, like, you know, if they need some help, like I can come in and I can lead the game and Katie can take over creative director. You know, next thing you know, we're now 54 people or whatever that are on the game right now. And the idea though, that like, we keep just kind of finding resonance and then, you know, tossing some more folks at it. And I think like, you know, the long story short of this in terms of kind of like how this came to be is like it came, kind of came from this great idea that actually was very strategically aligned and then kind of has changed shape very naturally while still making sure that like it's Katie and and, and Isaac and Ian and, you know, these other folks' game and that we're just kind of shepherding into, you know, call it the right box. Um, and, and Kendley, like, you know, it, it showed, it, the game, the is wildly good. Like, um, I'm, I'm not personally a huge farm sim fan and I find myself playing it a ton. My kids won't let me, you know, if I, when I bring the switch home on the weekend to play, like I don't get to play right. Um, you know, focus has gone really well, like et cetera, et cetera. And like, and the cool thing though, is it's really been about, you know, achieving Katie's vision, not about like just solving for some specific business objective like I never at no point has this been go sell 35 million units to the Animal Crossing or 40 million units to the Animal Crossing community it's very much a hey there's this great alignment between players who love this kind of genre on a console that is best in class for this genre that can deliver to an audience that is already there who's hungry for a game and this game is very much a love letter to that audience and less about Cool. Make make me fifty million bucks by you know the end of the week, or else.
0: Right. I just. I mean, what a Justin. Thank you for for bringing that up because what a great story about like very building a oh. forever company. Someone yeah. who literally said instead of saying I would like to build this game. Are you interested in building it? They jumped to the conclusion. I have to quit to make this and you said like
1: well, no let And told it- the company that she was quitting. That's the beauty part. So like Katie like literally writes the goodbye post on Slack that right. says, "Hey, you know, signar, I love you all." And then literally like a week later she's like, "This is really awkward, but I'm unquitting." <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like I felt so bad like, you know, <laughs> like actually never mind, I'm going to do this thing. I just thought it wasn't possible to do this thing. Right. Um and, just and you know, there's, it, like... there's, there's 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 probably a learning for me in like, hey, you know, I shouldn't have created an environment that, um, you know, where Katie thought that, you know, we weren't open to having that conversation or otherwise. But like, I can remember, um, in my in my part of this leadership journey, I had phoned up, um, to, you know, we're a subsidiary of a of a company called Gorino, and um, they're like kind of Southeast Asia's biggest game publisher, and they yeah, a uh,
0: hundred million players. A day. Yeah, massive, massive, massive. One Um, of the biggest games in the world that like kind of mainstream game industry doesn't um pay that much attention attention. to free fire.
1: Um and so you know, Katie had quit, and Katie's one of my favorite people I've ever worked with in my career. And so literally I'm on the phone that night with uh my boss just did our normal, you know, kind of monthly bi-monthly or whatever it was at the time, sync up, and I'm literally crying. I'm like, I can't believe this. You know, I started this company to be a forever company to get you know these creatives who could you know would find a home forever. And I can't believe she's leaving. And he's like, "Why is she leaving?" And he I'm like, "Well, she wants to make this game." He's like, "You make video games for a living. Why is this person leaving?" And I'm like,
0: oh. "Right, right. She's not leaving <laughs> to start a, a tea shop. She's leaving to right? make Right,
1: like, party. you know, and it, and it's like, does she want to start a company? I'm like, no, oh, I can't imagine. It's like. Cool. So you're dumb. <laughs> go have a conversation with her, right? It's like, oh, okay, cool, thanks, man. Like,
0: That's great. Yeah, absolutely great. Well, Jesse, if if I didn't have a meeting I have to get to, I think this could go <laughs> another hour easy. Um, cool. I've learned a lot. I think you know Thank some you. of my the, just the the framing of uh, thinking about it is the the way you think about theater the learning that you've kind of reevaluated your company and its structure as a leadership team soup to nuts 6 6 times or what you know however many it is that you look at it every year functionally this, functionally
1: every year yeah yeah
0: functionally like there there are so many great lessons here um about intentionally building a company about culture and, and building a forever company. And, you know, if someone's in the audience, um, and feels really inspired, um, you know, you're, you guys are a big studio. As you said, you have seven different games, any kind of, um, hot, hot jobs or hot postings you want to highlight or, you know, specific needs, um, or just how can, you know, how I mean, should people I mean, reach mean we're, we're a rapidly
1: did. growing, yeah, we're a rapidly growing game company. So like, you name it, we'll, we, we want it. Um, uh, and, you know, one of the other things that I would add, too, is, like, if, you know, if there's people that have questions on this stuff, I'm always, you know, rising tide raises all boats. And, like, my greatest goal in life is to not just make Phoenix great, but, like, you know, we have this amazing industry. And, like, if people have questions, like, just reach out. Like, I'm on Twitter. I'm around. Like... I mean, I think I'm like one of 10 people still on Twitter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, um, you know, I'm not hard to, I'm not hard to get a hold of and, um, you know, happy to, I'm always happy to, to lend an ear to, to folks who are, you know, trying to figure out their journey and, um, yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, Jesse, thanks so much. I, I really appreciate it. This was uh, oh, a pleasure, very inspiring man. talk.
1: Thanks, Ethan. It's good to see you, dude. Like, very good to see you, like. Let's make sure that we catch up more soon.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Thanks. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor of Fun Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructoroffun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.